Exodus, uh, chapter 20, and we're going to begin at verse 22. Uh, it's a fairly long reading, so before we read, why don't I pray that um, God would help us to concentrate and to hear his word. <laughs> Father God, thank you so much um, for your word. Thank you that you speak to us and that you will speak to us this evening. Uh, and Father, please would you bring your word uh, to life to us. Father, would your spirit be at work in us. Would you help us to concentrate now if we're feeling uh, tired or distracted? And Father, please, uh, would your spirit be at work uh, helping us to understand bits of this passage even before uh, Phil comes and speaks to us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to be uh, chapter 20, starting at verse 22. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites this, you have seen for yourselves that I have spoken to you from heaven. Do not make any gods to be alongside me. Do not make for yourselves gods of silver or gods of gold. Make an altar of earth for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, your sheep and your goats and your cattle. Wherever I cause my name to be honored, I will come to you and bless you. If you make an altar of stones for me, do not build it with dressed stones, for you will defile it if you use a tool on it. And do not go up to my altar on steps, lest your nakedness be exposed on it. These are the laws you are to set before them. If you buy a Hebrew servant, he is to serve you for six years. But in the seventh year, he shall go free without paying anything. If he comes alone, he is to go free alone. But if he has a wife when he comes, she is to go with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the woman and her children shall belong to her master, and only the man shall go free. But if the servant declares, I love my master and my wife and children and do not want to go free, then his master must take him before the judges. He shall take him to the door of the, or the doorpost and pierce his ear with an awl. Then he'll be his servant for life. If a man sells his daughter as a servant, she is not to go free as men servants do. If she does not please the master who has selected her for himself, he must let her be redeemed. He has no right to sell her to foreigners because he has broken faith with her. If he selects her for his son, he must grant her the rights of a daughter. If he marries another woman, he must not deprive the first one of her food, clothing, and marital rights. If he does not provide her with these three things, she is to go free without any payment of money. Anyone who strikes a man and kills him shall surely be put to death. However, if he does not do it intentionally, but God lets it happen, he is to flee to a place I will designate. But if a man schemes and kills another man deliberately, take him away from my altar and put him to death. Anyone who attacks his father or his mother must be put to death. Anyone who kidnaps another and either sells him or still has him when he is caught must be put to death. Anyone who curses his father or mother must be put to death. If men quarrel and one hits the other with a stone or with his fist and he does not die but is confined to bed... The one who struck the blow will not be held responsible if the other gets up and walks around outside with his staff. However, he must pay the injured man for the loss of his time and see that he is completely healed. If a man beats his male or female slave with a rod and the slave dies as a direct result, he must be punished. But he is not to be punished if the slave gets up after a day or two, since the slave is his property. If men who are fighting hit a pregnant woman and she gives birth prematurely, but there is no serious injury... The offender must be fined, whatever the woman's husband demands and the court allows. But if there is serious injury, you are to take life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. 
If a man hits a manservant or maidservant in the eye and destroys it, he must let the servant go free to compensate for the eye. And if he knocks out the tooth of a manservant or maidservant, he must let the servant go free to compensate for the tooth. If a bull gores a man or a woman to death, the bull must be stoned to death and its meat must not be eaten. But the owner of the bull will not be held responsible. If, however, the bull has had the habit of goring and the owner has been warned but has not kept it penned up and it kills a man or woman, the bull must be stoned and the owner also must be put to death. However, if payment is demanded of him, he may redeem his life by paying whatever is demanded. This law also applies if the bull gores a son or a daughter. If the bull gores a male or female slave, the owner must pay 30 shekels of silver to the master of the slave and the bull must be stoned. If a man uncovers a pit or digs one and fails to cover it and an ox or a donkey falls into it, the owner of the pit must pay for the loss. He must pay its owner and the dead animal will be his. If a man's bull injures the bull of another and it dies, they are to sell the live one and divide the money and the dead animal equally. However, if it was known that the bull had the habit of goring, yet the owner did not keep it penned up, the owner must pay animal for animal and the dead animal will be his. If a man steals an ox or a sheep and slaughters it or sells it, he must pay back five head of cattle for the ox and four sheep for the sheep. If a thief is caught breaking in and is struck that he dies, the defender is not guilty of bloodshed. But if it happens after sunrise, he is guilty of bloodshed. A thief must certainly make restitution. But if he has nothing, he must be sold to pay for his theft. If the stolen animal is found alive in his possession, whether ox or donkey or sheep, he must pay back double. Well done. We're going to continue on at uh, chapter 22, verse 16. That's chapter 22, verse 16, so just across the way. If a man seduces a virgin who has not pledged to be married and sleeps with her, he must pay the bride price and she shall be his wife. If her father absolutely refuses to give her to him, he must still pay the bride price for virgins. Do not allow a sorceress to live. Anyone who has sexual relations with an animal must be put to death. Whoever sacrifices to any other god other than the Lord must be destroyed. Do not ill-treat an alien or oppress him, for you were aliens in Egypt. Do not take advantage of a widow or an orphan. orphan. If you do and they cry out to me, I will certainly hear their cry. My anger will be aroused and I will kill you with the sword. Your wives will become widows and your children fatherless. And then going on, chapter 23, verse 1. Do not spread false reports. Do not help a wicked man by being a malicious witness. Do not follow the crowd in doing wrong. When you give testimony in a lawsuit, do not pervert justice by siding with the crowd and do not show favoritism to a poor man in his lawsuit. If you come across your enemy's ox or donkey wandering off, be sure to take it back to him. And then finally, verse 13. Be careful to do everything I have said to you. Do not invoke the names of other gods. Do not let them be heard on your lips. Three times a year you are to celebrate a festival to me. Celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread. For seven days eat bread made without yeast as I commanded you. Do this at the appointed time in the month of Abib, for in that month you came out of Egypt. No one is to appear before me empty-handed. Celebrate the Feast of Harvest with the first fruits of the crops you sow in your field. Celebrate the Feast of Ingathering at the end of the year when you gather in your crops from the field. Three times a year, all the men are to appear before the Sovereign Lord. 
Do not offer the blood of a sacrifice to me along with anything containing yeast. The fat of my, festivals, uh, of my festival offerings must not be kept until morning. Bring the best of the first fruits of your soil to the house of the Lord your God. Do not cook a young goat in its mother's milk. This is God's word. Well, that was fun, wasn't it? Should be obvious, I would have thought, uh, what the main point of the sermon will be. Yes. I'm glad we've already prayed. We're going to need help, aren't we? Uh, what on earth are we supposed to do with all of that? With the sort of complex, archaic, and to our ears, bizarre and often offensive laws in the Old Testament. How can this be God's moral law when it often sounds so blooming immoral to us? For many of us, the answer of what we do with all of that is very easy, actually. What do we do with all this stuff? ignore it. Just ignore it. Turn a few chapters on and find something that's actually useful to us as Christians. The only problem with that approach is that in 2 Timothy 3.16, Paul writes that all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so the man or woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So it's not an option to us to just ignore this. But what do we do with it? One of the problems is that we have uh, we come to the Old Testament, to these bits of the law, and there's stuff going on in our heads, which makes it very hard for us to, to get into the text. I've actually uh, written a short handout. There aren't quite enough um, left because those uh, greedy individuals at five nicked them. You won't have this problem next week. Uh, but um, you can pass them around if, if some people want them, and we'll copy some more if they're, if they're useful. It basically will tell you where I'm going for the introduction. You just, um, spread them around kindly. We'll see how good you are at sharing. Look. I think there are three really big problems we've got. We think that the Old Testament law is restrictive, offensive, and confusing. Restrictive, offensive, and confusing. Let me explain. I think the first, the biggest thing is actually we think it's restrictive. We would never say it in church. None of us would be quite that stupid. But even those of us who call ourselves Christians, when we read God's commands, we feel like it's this picture here. It is a cage, bars, keeping us away from fun. God's law restricts what I can do with my body, my money, my time. And we look at, uh, many of us were studying Psalm 73 uh, a few weeks ago. And we, we look at our non-Christian friends and their life seems so much easier. They look at us and they just think, what are you doing living with all those ridiculous rules, squeezing your fun, stopping you from doing all the stuff you obviously want to do? And we buy into that way of thinking. But the truth is completely the opposite. God's laws are restrictive. That is true. God's laws are very restrictive, but what do they restrict? They don't restrict me, they restrict sin. God's laws restrict sin. And sin brings death. Sin brings disease. Sin makes you less human. Every time you sin, every area of your life you give over to sin, you are dehumanizing yourself. You're becoming less fully human. Sin is self-harm. Not self-actualization, self-fulfillment, maturity. Sin is self-harm. And we need to learn to see the truth about sin, to trust God's word. 
When we do, when we, when we see through the lies, we understand how good it is that God has put sin in a cage. And that means we can live in freedom. There's a great verse in Psalm 119, verse 32. It says, I run in the path of your commands because you have set my heart free. Imagine saying that. God, your law is so good, it feels like running in freedom. God's law is not as restrictive as we think. But secondly, uh, we often think it's offensive. I mean, slavery, uh, (laughs) hello, did you listen to the reading? If he beats the slave and the slave gets up after a couple of days, it's all right. A man basically owns his daughter. A couple of things on that. Well, firstly, uh, when it talks about slavery, it is nothing like the African slave trade of the 18th century, 17th century. Nothing like that. It is nothing like 21st century slavery. Uh, the slavery that goes on just around the corner in Shepherd's Market is nothing like those sorts of slavery that's being talked about. And the Christian reformers who took the Bible literally, who killed the African slave trade in this country, they recognized that. They recognized that what was being spoken about in the Bible was a completely different thing from the wickedness that was being carried on by our country uh, in Africa and the Caribbean. That's the first thing. The second thing to say is, offensive to whom? Offensive to whom? You see, we're appalled by uh, a man basically owning his daughter, and so the talk of a man being able to sell his daughter. And yet we, uh, we read a few chapters on, um, as PJ read to us, the, uh, somebody finds a donkey that's um, struggling, it's collapsed under its load, it's owned by an enemy. Well, of course you help the donkey. That's just common sense. Obviously, we would all agree with that. The thing is, go a few hundred miles, a few thousand miles away, and you'll find there are cultures today in the world which would say, of course a man owns his daughter. But that's just ridiculous. Why would anybody help their enemy? That's just stupid. You see, the things that we think in our culture are awful and wonderful, in other cultures around the world, they see completely differently. So which of us is right? There is a supreme arrogance about us that says, our culture, 21st century London, we have everything right. We're the only culture in all of human history The only country in all of the world to have got it all worked out. But we're right. And so whenever we disagree with the Bible, it's us that's right and God that's wrong. That is a hugely arrogant position. You see, the Bible is always offensive to different cultures in different ways. And in a hundred years' time, there will be a group of trendy young people sitting in these chairs you're sitting in right now, looking back at you and laughing at the way you're dressed. I kid you not. In fact, it's quite easy to believe, standing here and looking out. Uh, they will be, in about five years' time, they're going to be laughing at what, uh, you're laughing at what I'm wearing. That's fine. I don't care. The, uh, but they, in a hundred years' time, people will look back at what we thought of as normal and they will say, hang on a second. They had the Bible... And they thought it was all right to do that. Are they nuts? There are lots of things that you and I think are fine that in a hundred years' time, Bible-believing Christians will probably look back on and think, that is unbelievable. We need to be humble before we judge God's words. We need to recognize that it is God's word that has the right to judge culture, not culture that judges God's word. Lastly, there is a difference between regulating and recommending. 
So the Bible, in God's kindness, regulates a whole load of stuff that God never recommends. So slavery and divorce would be the obvious examples. Things that God does not approve of, but God regulates because they exist in a sinful world. This is right at the start of Israel's history. The Bible's on a trajectory towards Jesus, not towards our modern culture, but towards Jesus. And there's an awful lot of stuff that gets regulated that's going on to try and limit the mess that eventually will be got rid of. But the Bible regulates things that God never recommends. God hates divorce. God hates slavery. And yet they are dealt with because they're realities in the world and so they're regulated by the Bible. But even if we're not finding God's word restrictive, even if we've seen past that lie, even if we're not offended by some of the culturally just well, that's just a big leap for us type stuff, we still find it confusing. So what I'm going to give you now is a bluffer's guide to the Old Testament law. That's what we really want. Bluffer's guide to the Old Testament law. I don't think that one's going to sell very well, but here you go. Uh, there is a threefold pattern to it, three tiers. You've got governing principle, foundational laws, and then practical scenarios. Governing principle, foundational laws, practical scenarios. Governing principle, Jesus says, Matthew 22, 37 to 40, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's the governing principle that summarizes, that drives the whole law. That's what God cares about. Foundational principle. Uh, the foundational law, sorry, the Ten Commandments, the co- concrete expression of love for God and love for people, the Ten Commandments. And then you've got the practical scenarios. What does it look like to love God and to obey the Ten Commandments when, you, when God's people are one nation living in a pre-industrial agricultural society? What does it look like? Let me show you what I mean. Governing principle, uh, love your neighbor as yourself. Ten Commandments says, Sixth Commandment, Thou shalt not murder. Yeah, I was going to say that. Thou shalt not murder. Uh, what does it mean if you're in uh, an ancient Israelite culture? It means Deuteronomy 22, uh, 8, build a parapet, a low wall around the edge of your house. Why? In that culture, people slept on the roof when they came to stay. There you go. That's what the Bible says. When your family come to stay, if you want to be biblical about it, get them to sleep on the roof. Their roofs were flat (laughs) and it was warm before you get too excited. It does have some merits though. Uh, But um, it's an obvious thing. If you love people and you don't want to kill people, then if they sleep on your roof, you build a parapet so no one rolls off and dies in the night. Simples. There you go. Uh, That's the shape. Governing principle, 10 foundational laws giving it concrete solidity, what it actually means, and then practical scenarios for what it meant for when God's people are one nation living in one place as an agricultural pre-industrial society. The bit we read tonight, obviously, is the practical scenarios, the case laws, the, well, what does it look like for them then? And that explains how it fitted together for an Israelite at the time of Moses. But what about for us? How do we relate to this law? That's what it meant for an Israelite. What does it mean for you and for me tonight? Here's the headline. It no longer governs you as law, but it still teaches you as God's word. 
So it, it is no longer your law that you have to obey, but it is God's word that teaches, that instructs us. It's not the, uh, the covenant, the way of relating to God for us. So for the Israelites, they related to God through the law of Moses. For us, we relate to God through Jesus Christ, who has obeyed the law of Moses in our place. It should be obvious too, actually, um, that the nature of the laws shows they're not meant to be obeyed by us in the same way, because there's not enough of them. Like, did you hear the reading? Not enough. Well, yes, actually. Uh, If these are God's laws for all time, for all people, for all culture, to be applied in a sort of Sharia-like way of you apply whatever the culture, this set of laws, boom. If that's the case, you need a whole lot more law, because... Well, it says here you can't uh, boil a goat in its mother's milk. What about lambs? Can you do that? Heston Blumenthal's bound to be trying. So is, is that all right? Is it just a goat thing or is it a kind of all animals in their mother's milk thing? I don't know. doesn't tell you. It doesn't mention the internet, credit cards, cars. There's so much it would need to tell us if this was meant to be the law to govern everything we do for all time. It's obviously not. But the main reason we know this isn't the law for us in the same way it was for Israel is not that we know better, having read it and worked that out, it's that Jesus knows best. And the law is like a train that takes us to him. That's what it's doing in the Old Testament. Everything in the Old Testament is heading towards Jesus Christ. Uh, John 5.39, Luke 24.44, Jesus says, the whole Old Testament, it arrives on, it builds towards, it's about me. That's what he says. Profoundly An arrogant statement, unless you're God in human flesh. But he says it's all about him. He is the lens. You will never understand the Old Testament right. You can't read the Old Testament right unless you look at it through the glasses of Jesus, the lens of Jesus, unless you see how it goes to him first. So we can never go from an Old Testament law to ourselves. We must always go Old Testament law to Jesus to ourselves. Otherwise, we're just not being biblical. And Jesus changes things radically. We're under, the technical term is we're under a new covenant. Jesus says on the night um, that he's betrayed, as he, uh, as he has the last supper with his disciples, he says, uh, this bread, this wine, this is my blood of the new covenant. Covenant being basis of relationship with God. And he says there's a new one. The Old Testament, you related to God through Moses' law. Now you relate to God through my death. Hence the bread and the wine through my death. He says, I have lived the perfect life. I have obeyed all of these 613 laws of the Old Testament, which you can't. And I've died to pay for your failure to obey. And so now you relate to God, not through laws that you keep, but through a saviour who you trust. You relate to God, not through laws that you keep, but through a saviour that you trust, who has obeyed, who has died, who has forgiven. But it's not irrelevant for us. It's not irrelevant for us. It remains scripture. It remains God's word. So what can we learn? Right, you still with me? That's the introduction out of the way. Longest introduction I will ever give. And I promise the sermon's actually quite short. Um, You'll find basically that's all in the handout, roughly. Um, But that's roughly where we go. What do you make of the Old Testament law? We've now arrived at the position where hopefully the the kind of barriers that stop us wanting to listen to it are gone. And uh, some of the confusion about how it works are gone. So we're ready now to listen to the law. Knowing that uh, this will help us understand more of Christ. But this is not the basis of our relationship with God. 
What is it then? Well, it does three things. It will drive us to Christ. You see, we always think of um, rules as ladders to climb. God is up there, we're down here, so we're looking for ladders to climb up to him. And rules are great because if I keep the rules, then I'm climbing up the ladder. And the better I am and the further I am than you, then the closer I am to God. The Old Testament is so high, so holy, so many laws that it makes you realize I have no hope of ever climbing up. And we stop longing for a ladder to climb and we start begging God to send a savior to reach down. And that's the main thing the Lord does, is it reveals God is so holy and his standards so high, his laws so many, that it makes you long for a saviour to come and save you, because you think there's no way I can get saved by keeping these laws. It's the first thing. It sends us to Christ. Secondly, it restrains us from evil. Imagine a teacher, somebody who works in education, does what some schools have done in the past and says, instead of having any rules in the school, we're just going to... We're going to let the children follow the light of their inner conscience and behave as they see fit. Can you imagine what that would be like after two weeks? Absolute horror, basically, is what it would be. Absolute horror. It'd be Lord of the Flies. The, why? Because we, if we don't know what to do, we do what's wrong. It's our natural inclination. We need God's rules to restrain us from evil. They don't enable us to do what's right, but they at least show us the right way to go. And so God's laws restrain us from from evil. And then lastly, they do teach us how to live. You see, there is a reason that God gave these particular laws to his people rather than a whole load of different laws. There are principles in here that we can learn as we seek to obey God today. So um, Deuteronomy 25.4 says, Don't muzzle an ox while it's treading out the grain. Hugely important verses for all of us, I'm sure in our day-to-day lives. Actually, they are. Because Paul takes the principle that you allow an ox to eat as it's working. And in 1 Timothy 5.17, he says the principle is you pay people for the work they do. Now, that is a good principle. You pay people for what they do. He takes the principle from the Old Testament and applies it to us. Okay, what about this bit? These weird chapters with their confusing things. What do we learn from here? The main thing I want to say is is basically in the answer to the question, why is it so blooming random? What is going on? Why is it just, you know, what's, I mean, literally what's happening is, do you remember when Jethro came to Moses? Moses said, look, you're just going to wear, Jethro said, you're going to wear yourself out, Moses, my son-in-law. You've got all these people coming out of Egypt. They, They have no idea who God is yet. They're working out how to live for him. They've got no parents to say, oh, we've been Christians all our lives. This is what you do. There are no church elders saying, oh, well, thankfully, you know, this is how you live as a Christian. There's no legacy for them to, to tap in on. So every decision they make, you know, it's mealtime. I think I'll just boil this goat in its mother's milk. I wonder if we can do that. They have to go and ask Moses. It's, I was planning on uh, making a new shirt from two fabrics. I wonder if we can do that. Better go and ask Moses. Everything they do, they have no idea. I mean, who would know? So they have to ask Moses. And Jethro says, teach them God's laws so they can work this stuff out for themselves. And then you just deal with the hard cases. And so that's what we have here. All the rich tapestry of life here. And in fact, this is just the start of the laws as they work out what it means. Actually, it's interesting that the, the word for laws in 21 verse 1 is mishpatim. 
which is literally judgments or decisions. In other words, it's if you came and asked God what to do, this is the decision he would give you. That's what's being said. If you came and asked God questions about, well, worship, sacrifices, slavery, accidental death, theft, goring by oxes, borrowing money, kidnap, extramarital sex, bribery, treatment of immigrants, witchcraft, eating roadkill, testifying in court, helping donkeys, how not to pray, when to take your holidays, and pretty much everything else besides is covered here. But how on earth do you find a principle? You know, what's the kind of the uniting theme that we can take from this and apply to our lives? Because it's just confusing. You just think, God, surely it would be, you should always be worried when you find yourself thinking, God, it would make much more sense if only you. <laughs> Life tip there. You're always in trouble when you're thinking that. I was reading it this week and thinking, God, why didn't you make it, you know, so that they fitted the Ten Commandments? So a whole lot of stuff about honoring God and then some stuff about keeping the Sabbath and then some stuff about honoring parents and then some stuff about, you know, protecting human life. That would make sense, God. Why is it so random? The interesting thing is that when you turn to the book of Proverbs, you find exactly the same thing. You don't find the Proverbs group. So if you want to know God's wisdom for how to be a good friend, and there's some brilliant wisdom about that in Proverbs, you have to read through all the other stuff about honoring God first, about not committing adultery because you're an idiot if you do about how hard work is better than stupid schemes, about how bribery actually works, but it does corrupt your soul, and, 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 and. You only find the bits you want by going through everything. And the more I studied these chapters in Exodus, the more I'm convinced that that is the point. I think that is exactly the point. Let me explain why. So uh, the mingling of the stuff, you've got stuff about uh, how to treat immigrants and then just before it, a ban on bribery and just after it, uh, when to take all the religious holidays and festivals. And what it does is it shows in a graphic way this intermixing of everything. God is concerned about Monday to Saturday as he is about Sunday. And in fact, God is concerned about all of Monday to Sunday, about every second of every day, about every activity that all of us do. All of it matters to God. You see, it's not as if we can rank them. There's no hierarchy. Stuff about God first, because that's what matters most. And then there's, you know, you get down to the kind of stuff about what you do on the Sabbath. No, it's all mixed in. It's all mixed in. Because it's all important. And you can't just pick one bit. You need to get all of it to get any of it. You see, people have always had this idea that normal life, you know, sort of plowing fields, changing nappies, doing the accounts, it just can't be as spiritual as, well, praying, reading the Bible. And so in medieval times, people became monks and nuns because, well, if you wanted to be really spiritual... If you wanted to be doing something that mattered to God, then you could hardly be a farmer. You have to go into a monastery and chant psalms. Well, actually, they seem to spend most of their time brewing beer, but uh, be that as it may. The, the idea was that you went there, you chanted psalms, you read the Bible, you prayed and prayed and prayed. And that, because, well, that's what God cares about. The stuff that's going on down in the village, you know, God really couldn't care less about that. But that is not what we see here. God cares here about the altars for his sacrifices. Well, of course, but he also cares about how servants are treated. 
He cares about human life and what happens when two people have a fight. He cares about whether people um, keep oxen penned that are dangerous. He cares about property and theft and honesty in court. He cares about how you pray and he cares about how you treat immigrants. He cares about all of life. That means God is interested in how you write a report. God cares about how rigorous you are with the bibliography on your essay. God cares about how you listen to a patient, how you teach a lesson. God cares about how you code the software. God cares about how you cook the meal, how you talk to your housemates, whether you're kind to your mother. God cares about those things just as he cares about how I write a sermon. God cares about what's going through your heart when you do the washing up as much in one sense as he cares about what's going through my heart when I preach a sermon. God cares about everything you do. He is a Monday to Sunday God. The talking heads in the media these days and the opinion papers in will tell you again and again, it's all right to be a Christian or a Muslim or a Hindu or a Buddhist or whatever you want to be. That's all fine. But you should keep your faith private. Your faith should stop at the front door. Once you go out into the world and engage in business or politics, then that's not appropriate for your faith to have an influence on what you do, what you say. Do you see how utterly impossible that is? Can you imagine trying to keep... How do you keep this lot if you stop at the front door? Does this look like a God who says, well, I don't mind it if you keep it private. You, can, you should be able to do politics and business without worrying about me. It's absolutely impossible. We cannot keep our faith private because our God will not let us. Secondly, it is not just people out there, though, who are trying to drive a wedge between your faith and how you live your life in the world. I think the problem is also in here, in our church, in me and in you. I guess uh, most of us know we would never be so crass as to sort of fall into that thinking that says worship is what happens in church and it's really just the, the singing. That's what worship is. We know Romans 12.1 that says, therefore, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. We know that, uh, you know, all of life is now worship, everything we do. We'd never be so crass as to, as to think that. But, but I know in my heart, and I know talking to you, that we do slip into this sort of thinking in a more subtle way. We act as if my singing, my praying, my church stuff, my quiet time, are somehow more important to God. It's somehow more important to God that I'm doing those things well than the other stuff. How I spend my money, how I speak to other people, what I watch on TV, how obsessed I am with my career or my course, how harsh and unforgiving I can be in my relationships. We kind of get to thinking that that doesn't matter so much if I'm I'm really on it on Sunday. I'm really engaged when I sing. I'm really passionate in the in a way that I relate to God. I'm really involved in church. We sort of feel like that that ought to weigh more with God than my failings in other areas. 
He is the God of Monday to Sunday. The God of Exodus 20 to 23 is is not a God who cares little about what happens out there so long as you get it right in here. There's a great little um, bit in 1 Samuel 15. Saul, the king, has been sent by Samuel, God's messenger, to destroy the Amalekites. And they've been unbelievably wicked. And God has said, right, time's up for the Amalekites. You must destroy everything they own. They've got to be wiped out in judgment. But Saul and the army see a whole lot of really, really nice livestock. You know, it's just great. This is, this is your sort of Audi Q7s and Ferraris of the day. You're like, it would be ridiculous to just burn this lot. And so they hang on to it. And there's this lovely line as Samuel comes to meet Saul. And he says, did you obey what God said? And Saul says, oh yes, absolutely. And he says, what then is this lowing of cattle and bleating of sheep I hear in my ears? And oh, well, that, well, we, we thought that we saw just such amazing cattle. We thought that rather than just destroy them, we'd bring them here and sacrifice them to God. And Samuel says, stop. Does the Lord your God, does the Lord our God love and enjoy sacrifices as much as obeying the voice of the Lord? Don't think that God is more interested in what goes on in here, as if this means it doesn't matter so much about some of the other stuff I'm getting up to out there. God cares about Monday to Saturday as much as Sunday. Likewise, God cares about every day, not just some of them. It is exam season. I'm sorry to bring up that ugly, awful subject. But uh, I'm sure it's, uh, unless things have changed radically, um, I know things are always easier nowadays and they were back in my day or something like that but I remember exams and there was always you know here's 45 questions please attempt five in the three hours you've got wouldn't it be wonderful if it was like that with God's commands here's 10 commands try to keep three I'd have a better go at that whichever you find costliest most confusing most inconvenient you can just ignore them now that would work for me I can already think in my mind the ones I'd be ignoring. It's very easy, isn't it? It doesn't work like that with God. It's not like that at all. Look at uh, chapter 23 and verse 13. This is the only verse we're really going to home in on in one sense. Be careful to do most of what I've... Some, be careful to do everything I have said to you. It's no use thinking it's okay you're sleeping with your boyfriend because you're really honest at work and you don't get drunk when you go out on Friday night and you sent your mum a lovely, lovely bunch of flowers today. It's no good thinking it's okay that I spend all my money on myself because I'm really good at inviting friends to mission events and guerrilla Christians. God is a both and God, not an either or God. He's not an either or God, he's a both and God. And because he loves you, He wants you to stay away from the corrupting, destructive, dehumanizing effects of sin in every area of your life. He does not want that poison infecting any part of you, anything you do. And so he warns you and puts the barriers up to keep you safe, to keep you in joy and freedom. What all this means is that there is a dignity and a value to all of your life. There is nothing you do that is unimportant. God doesn't care less about 
Everything you do matters in his eyes. It also means there is an accountability. Everything we do is seen by God and is weighed by him. See, I think we, uh, we often think of life as a pie. I'm a big fan of pies, very big fan of pies, all sorts of pies, savory and sweet. I'll take them all. Uh, but we think of life as a pie, you know, big round pie, and you've got, you know, your segments. You've got you know, study, sleep, depending whether you're a student or working. Um, you've got daytime television. Uh, I'm not going to make any more. Yeah, commuting on the underground sort of around here in London. There, you've got, you know, the sections of pie. And if you expand one section, you know, uh, got to spend a bit more time with uh, the parents, then you have to squeeze something else. Work usually is the bit that gets squeezed. But And we kind of think that what God is saying is, I want more of the pie. You give me a chunk of Sunday. You give me a one night in the rest of the week couple of mornings for a quiet time. I'd like some more. God's not saying I want more of the pie. He doesn't want you to go from this to this. God says all of the pie, all of it, it's mine, all of it, every last crumb, every bit of your pie belongs to me. God wants it all. He wants all of your Sunday. Doesn't mean he wants you to be in church all day, unless you're one of the musicians. Uh, it means uh, it means he wants you to serve and honor him all of the Sunday. When you read the Sunday papers, he wants you to honor him with the thoughts in your hearts as you read those stories and look at those things that you'd like. As you watch the Premier League in the afternoon, he wants you to honor him with the banter and the way you drink and the thoughts in your heart. And yes, he wants you to honor him as you arrive at church, as you decide who you'll talk to, who you'll sit with, as you hear his word and decide whether to obey or ignore as you decide how much attention you're going to give him. He wants all of it. And he wants it for two reasons. One, because it's his. He gets it. It's his. Whether you like it or not, it belongs to him. But two, he wants it because he loves you. And he knows the best way for you to work, rest, sleep, study, relate, play sport. He knows the best way to enjoy those things. And so he wants you to enjoy them too. So he says, come and do it my way. Give me everything. Live in my freedom. The Dutch theologian and prime minister, Abraham Kuyper, famously declared, there is not one square inch of the domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not declare mine. Jesus looks at the whole universe and says, mine, and there is not one atom which is accepted from that. And that being so, you and I need to ask, which bit of my life is furthest from God's word? Which bit of my life is least under the rule of Jesus Christ? Honesty at work? My sexual purity? My attitude to money? My willingness to tell other people about Jesus. My commitment and desire to making life as comfortable as possible. Which part of my life is furthest from Christ's rule? If we're honest, the answer has to be all of it. There is no area of my life which is perfectly under Christ's rule. 
Whitfield, the great evangelist of the 18th century, who saw the most enormous revival in this country's history, said, I need to repent of every sermon I've ever preached and every prayer I've ever prayed. He understood he never served God perfectly in any area. God's standards are impossibly high. But you see, this is what it means for the law to work. It it exposes our sinfulness and drives us to our Savior, Jesus Christ. As we hear the scope of God's law, we sense our sinfulness. And we're tempted to run and hide. But the thing is, you can't outrun God. And there's no way you can hide that he wouldn't find you. Instead, run to him. And when we run to Christ, we find that the Christ who demands perfect obedience is the Christ who obeyed perfectly on our behalf and is the Christ who died perfectly for our sins and is the Christ who forgives fully all who come to him. And so we need to ask this question, which part of my life is furthest from Christ? But we ask it with the, the freedom and the confidence of people who know that we are forgiven and accepted by what he has done. And so bearing in mind your forgiveness in Christ, where is the Holy Spirit putting the finger on you right now? What area of your life most needs to change? And what are you going to do about it tonight and tomorrow? We're going to have a minute just to think in quietness, to do business with God in our souls. Our Father, we thank you that we have a Savior who has kept your law perfectly and who has died to forgive us for our failure to keep it, to love you, to honor and obey you. Father, we pray that you would help us to to turn back to you. And we pray that your Spirit would help us tonight to make resolutions and to keep them, that we might turn away from the self-harm of sin and walk in the freedom of your ways. For your great glory. Amen.